All right, I invite you to find Luke chapter 22 in your Bible. We're going to talk about failure today, but we're going to be really happy while we're doing it. And um, while you're finding Luke 22, I'll just set up the rest of November for you, preaching-wise. We're going to spend two uh, Sundays talking about the subject of failure. As we're in a section of Luke's gospel where the failures of Jesus' disciples um, are front and center. In fact, there is um, a ton of material just all the way through the rest of Luke 22 where his disciples' failures are just the constant theme. So we're going to have to take more than one Sunday to talk about it. So we're going to do that today. Today's going to be part one, focusing more so on what I'm calling everyday failures, those things that we all probably struggle with more or less, you know, every day or consistently. That's part one, everyday failures. Two weeks from today, um, we're going to go back to the subject of failure and talk about uh, what I'm just calling uh, great failures. Those like really public, really obvious, grand type failures. Um, think Peter, think Judas, okay? So that's coming in a couple weeks. Grand failure today, every, everyday failures. In the middle between that, we're doing Mission Sunday, right? Next Sunday, okay? All right, so that's where we're going. Um, so part one and part two, two quick things here as we get going before we um, read the text about failure. Um, just realize that our goal here um, is not to to heap guilt on ourselves. We're just recognizing as we go through here and talk about everyday failures that um, while we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come in all of its fullness to this earth, while we're waiting for a resurrection body where failure won't be part of our story anymore, sin won't be part of our story anymore, failure is going to happen. And so we're, we're just confronting that reality in the face we're all in the same boat. We're here to learn and grow, not to experience a lot of guilt as we walk out the door. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to mention before we read the text is just to consider what it means that the failures of Jesus' disciples um, are highlighted in the Bible. Think about what that means, that the failures of Christians are front and center in the Bible. New Testament, failures of God's people. We'd say Old Testament, failures of God's people. But that failure is such a consistent theme that they're set out in broad daylight. And what I want you to consider is that does that not make the New Testament accounts feel that much more trustworthy? that we know that there hasn't been an attempt here to um, whitewash the, the past and make it look really, really good to try to keep people in the faith. Because here's what happens. When, when um, someone wants to start a new religious endeavor, or a, a, little, a following, they gather themselves a, a religious following, and they've got a little group of people that they draw around them, and then they've got other followers. And then when the founder dies... And the, now the effort is to kind of maintain the momentum of this following that they've started. That inner circle of the founder and the people that come immediately afterwards 
have tremendous pressure to kind of eradicate and not talk about all the indiscretions and the mistakes of the founder and the inner circle and make everything seem like really squeaky clean so that people will trust and stay in the faith. And so just think about how that's not the case with the Bible at all. The Bible is exactly the opposite. It seems to take pains to show us all of the problems, all of the warts that are in the past. You know, we've got Paul's pre-Christian life where he was a persecutor and a murderer. You know, Peter's failure here, his cowardice and his denials are not covered up. Judas' betrayal is not covered up. All these things are out in the front. All we're looking at here in the Bible is a plain effort to tell the truth and hide nothing. And in the end, isn't that what we want? We, we want to know that we can trust the scriptures as just telling us the plain truth. And so I just submit that to you as one data point. If you wrestle with the trustworthiness of what we find here, just notice that there's no attempt to cover up failure. In fact, it's the opposite. It's, hey, look at all the ways that the disciples of Jesus failed. And we're going to enter into that ourselves this morning and talk about those failures, okay? So Luke 22, I'm going to start in verse 24. I'm going to read through 46. Um, So the reading is a little bit longer than normal, but... As, as we go through, as we read this, just see how many different failures you can pick up on as we read. Just make a mental note of them. Like, yeah, that was probably a failure. Okay? Let's read it together, then we'll talk about it. I invite you to stand in honor of God's word, if you're able, for the reading of the word. This is Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. So, just setting the context again, this, this is right after the Lord's Supper. Okay? So, we're in the upper room Last week, we talked about the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then we read this happens next, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them. This is the small group of disciples that's gathered. Dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny Three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. 
And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to completely take over our minds, completely take over our wills, to to flood our hearts with joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and the words that he speaks. And may his Um, beauty really shine forth now in what he says and how he responds to his disciples. Um, We admit our weakness as followers. We enter into this um, in truth and honesty and open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written down and handed down to us. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated, folks. How should we begin to process this? All this this failure, failure that we see. There are several different ways that we could approach this. One approach, this is, um, I feel like this was a common approach when when I was kind of growing up and coming through the ranks and reading the Bible for myself and being taught the Bible. Whenever we would encounter the disciples doing something a little bit embarrassing or wrong, we would just um, kind of make fun of them or, or say, look, you know, look how, look how horrible that is. These guys were so clueless. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you've kind of heard it preached that way. You know, we look at Peter and his bravado, and we just kind of laugh at Peter and the things that he says— I don't think that approach is very helpful. We're not going to take that approach today. That is a, if nothing else, we can say that that approach lacks any humility at all and just plain out fails to recognize that we fail in a lot of these same ways. Okay? So we're not going to make fun of the disciples today and treat them like some kind of alien group that just were so clueless, like we would never fall into those things. We're not going to do that. Another approach that we could take would be to come to a text like this and find, um, find comfort that, hey, look at all these failures that we see in front of us. These guys were really close to Jesus, and they failed a lot, so that makes me feel a little bit better about myself and almost is like permission to go and... Just be a failure and kind of swim in that environment and say, we're all in this together. No one's getting it right. Let's not try too hard to progress because if they were acting this way, why should we be any different? And treat this passage as more of a pillow to just kind of recline in our failures and just be okay with it over time. We're not going to take that approach either. 
We've been called to maturity and growth, not stagnation, not resignation. There's other approaches that, that could be taken. There's lots of options on the table, but here's how we're going to approach it today, and here's how we're going to process what we see here. First of all, we're going to identify personally with all of the failures that we see. In honesty and humility, we're going to notice how we also participate in these kinds of everyday failures. So that's the first thing. Identify personally with the failures that we see here. Secondly, and this is where we're going to do something different than what's typically done. Instead of simply asking, how can we all be better? How can we all not fail so much? We're going to ask a different question. We're going to ask the question, how does Jesus address these failures? Do you understand? We're going to identify with the failures that we see here, and then we're just going to look at the text and say, what does Jesus do when he sees them failing? How does he address it? How does he respond? I think that's going to be much more meaningful and much more fruitful for us than simply asking, how can I be a better Christian? That kind of approach, if we just come here and say, well, how can I be better? How can I not fail so much? That kind of discussion can tend to just leave Jesus out of the equation altogether. Now we're just working on self-improvement. We might never get around to letting Jesus into the equation or into the conversation. We're just focused on self-improvement. So we're going to try to take a Jesus-centered approach to this. Identify personally with the failures that we see, and then just notice how does Jesus address them. Because in the end, it really is more life-giving, I think, to focus and feed our souls on what we see in Jesus than on what kinds of improvements we might see in ourselves. Lasting improvement, real growth, will come from feeding our souls on what we see in Jesus Christ. So we have to focus on him, seeing him, treasuring what we find there. So that's going to be our approach, okay? Well, let's get started. What kind of failures do we see here? Um, We're going to notice three of them. The first failure that we see, this is verses 24 through 30, the first section, is what we could call jealous self-seeking. Jealous self-seeking. We read in in verse 24 that the disciples are arguing about which one of them is to be regarded as the greatest. Remember, as we said, that this conversation that they're having is following right on the heels of the Last Supper. So doesn't it seem a little bit silly, a little bit out of place after Jesus has just passed around the bread and the cup for this kind of discussion to break out? Like, how could, how could that possibly happen to go into this kind of a dispute right on the heels of this is my body, this is my blood given for you? But notice that it could very well be that this argument over who is the greatest is um, perhaps catalyzed by what Jesus has just said. The the very end of his presentation of the bread and the cup, he says to them, one of you will betray me. There there is a betrayer among them. There's one who's going to fail terribly. 
And maybe, this is, this is just conjecture, but maybe this discussion doesn't really come out of the clear blue sky. Maybe this leads them to start evaluating everyone's merits as they're trying to figure out, well, who is the betrayer here? Who's going to have this tremendous failure? And they just sort of start putting themselves in a hierarchy of, well, this person could never do it, and I'm up here, but they're down here. I could really see it being like this person, okay? And they start to say, well... Doesn't it make sense to say, well, it's not going to be Peter or James or John because they're up here. Maybe it's someone from, and they start kind of putting themselves in order. So maybe it doesn't come out of the clear blue sky. They're arguing over which one of them is to be regarded as the greatest, and we're calling it jealous self-seeking. It's an everyday failure, something that we all struggle with. Competition among the disciples of Jesus, to be regarded as the greatest. Notice the word regarded. Verse 24 says, A dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What does that tell us? It tells us that their concern about being regarded as the greatest has to do with how they look in the eyes of other people. The dispute isn't over which one of them is the greatest. The dispute is over which one of them is to be regarded as the greatest. We're talking about the desire to be thought of as great or greater in the eyes of people. Like, can you identify with that? If you're a disciple of Jesus, can you identify with the pull of your heart to um, be higher on someone else's list of who's the best at this? Higher than those other Christians? Can you identify with the desire to be regarded as the best? To be viewed by others as um, the most committed? The most knowledgeable? To be regarded as that person that when they pray sounds the most sincere? To be regarded as the person who gives the most inspiring devotionals, sermons, talks, To be regarded as the person who is the most devout or has the most scripture memorized or is, just has the most creative genius. We could go on and on. The fact is that we like to be better than other people. Not, not just in a, a Christian practice sense. We like to be regarded as better than other people at pretty much everything that's out there. It's the way the whole world is. I think it's changed since the context that Jesus was speaking into. We look at other people, even in the Christian realm, and we make judgments about them and where they are and where we are based on how many followers they have and how many likes they have and um, how great amount of influence they have. We, we participate. We actively participate in the setting up of these hierarchies. We do it among ourselves, and we probably don't think twice about it. It's just the way the world is. We have bought into that system when Jesus has shown us a different way. Like, if that, if that exhausts you, like, if you're ready to get off of that never-ending treadmill of effort to be higher than this person, have more and more, I have good news for you. Jesus invites us to something different than that, completely opposite from that. 
And I invite you to come to him. That's not his framework. And if that appeals to you to get out of that realm completely, to just step out of it and let everyone else worry about who's the greatest and you can live according to a different code, okay, keep listening. Because Jesus shows us a different way. I think we can all identify with jealous self-seeking. Okay, here's the second one, second failure that we see. Small section in the middle. This is the one about Peter. Prideful self-sufficiency. Prideful self-sufficiency. We see in verse 33 that Peter makes a really big claim, doesn't he? Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And we know from reading further, he is ready for neither of those things. He is neither ready to go to prison, nor is he ready to go to death with Jesus. That will be proven just a few hours from when he makes this statement. All right, so what is Peter's failure here? What's his, what's his fault? Well, if the previous failure that we spoke of is a desire for personal greatness... The failure here is of personal sufficiency. It's a failure of pride. A failure of thinking that he is enough, like he has enough fortitude, commitment, zeal for Jesus that will carry him through any situation that he encounters. Look again at what happens here. It, if it weren't so sad, it, it actually would be kind of funny, okay? I, I admit I found this funny this week, so if you want to laugh, you can laugh. Look, look what happens. Jesus says to him, this is verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, that's a plural you, Okay? We can't tell in English because we, only, we use the word you for singular and plural, okay? But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this verse in Texan, okay? So that you can understand what Jesus is actually saying here. This is what it would sound like in Texan as Jesus is addressing uh, Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have y'all. That he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you. So we've moved from plural to singular. Satan has demanded to have y'all, as in all of y'all disciples. Satan has demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is saying to Peter, I have prayed for you, that your strength may not fail. And Peter's reply to that statement from Jesus is, you know, thanks, but I don't really need that prayer. Thanks, thank you for praying for me, but Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Thanks for that, but I'm, you know, I'm good. I don't need that. I found that funny, really funny. At the same time, a a sorry self-sufficiency 
to, to say that kind of thing to Jesus, to not recognize one's own need. He doesn't see himself as being in need of someone to pray for him. And of course, we'd say, that's not good. That represents a failure. That doesn't represent reality. And like we said, that's going to be proven true in a few hours in Peter's life, as we said. But notice this as we begin to think about how we might share this failure with Peter. Prideful self-sufficiency. This is why pride and self-sufficiency are so deceptive and so hard to untangle from. Just think about how Peter's feeling of self-sufficiency in this moment is not completely baseless. Now, it's not like he is a six-year-old who has had some success at at T-ball that thinks that they're ready to go to bat at Yankee Stadium and, and hit a home run. That would just be childish delusion. That's, that's just silliness. But that's not Peter here. This isn't childish self-delusion. Peter has actually had some success at, like, at the big league level. He has demonstrated keen insight into who Jesus is and even superior insight. Remember, he was the one all the way through who has given the right answers and the faith-filled answers to who Jesus Christ is. Peter was the one that, I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter made that confession. Peter was the one, John 6, when Jesus said, do you all want to leave as well? Everyone's leaving because my teaching is too hard. Do you guys want to go away as well? Peter's the one who says, no, we're not going anywhere. You have the words of eternal life. So his resume is already loaded with moments of keen insight and even superior insight over his peers, and it's loaded with moments of fidelity and commitment. And not only that, but Jesus has already recognized him before the others publicly. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Jesus has also included him in his inner circle. He has invited Peter to witness things that the others didn't get to see So in his background is publicly recognized success at the big league level. So his big claims are not baseless. And that's the way that prideful self-sufficiency works. The more we do for Jesus, and the more success that we have, and the more recognition that we get, for that success, or the keen insights, or the superior commitment, whatever, the more we succeed and are recognized, the more susceptible we are to this failure. It's a failure that's actually born of success, and a failure that's fed by success. So I invite you to take a moment and just see where this kind of failure may be happening in your life? Where have you developed proficiency, right? Don't look at your areas of weakness. Where are your areas of strength where you have had success and you've been recognized and praised 
That's the area to look at to say, have I developed a a prideful self-sufficiency? And the clue, the warning sign will be prayerlessness. It's that area of your life where you have developed your gift and have had success and been recognized and maybe so much so that you no longer feel the need to pray. To pray about it and be dependent on God to do that thing in your evangelism or your counseling or your teaching or your parenting or the stewarding of your gift. Okay, It's an everyday failure. It's something we all struggle with. It's demonstrated here by Peter. Okay, so there's two failures. Can you handle a third? Jealous self-seeking, prideful self-sufficiency. The last one that we see here is um, what I'm calling lazy self-indulgence. This is the garden, the garden scene, the sleeping, the sleeping scene, verses 39 to 46. This small group of disciples is with Jesus in the garden. There's a real spiritual battle happening. Jesus is, is fighting a real spiritual battle, make the most intense spiritual battle probably that's ever been fought, working out in agony. This decision to yield to the will of the Father, to pray this prayer, let this cup pass from me if possible, but not my will be done but yours. Jesus Christ deciding in that moment for sure to be the one who becomes the curse on our behalf, to bear the sin of the world on his shoulders, say yes to the Father, your will be done. And in the midst of this spiritual battle that's happening, the disciples are invited to participate through prayer. And they decide to go to sleep. There is, um, they've been invited to participate, but there's lack of engagement in the real spiritual battle that's happening around them. Now, I don't think it's hard for us to connect um, personally to what we see here. We, too, have been invited into the real spiritual battle that's happening around us through prayer and through laboring to tell people about Jesus and initiate relationship with people for gospel purposes. We've been invited to that kind of engagement. And so, again, not here to spread guilt around the room because we're getting to good news, but how are you doing in your level of engagement? Is your walk with Jesus marked by lazy self-indulgence? Have you just kind of decided to sit this one out and then the next one and the next one and the next one? All the inertia is just you on the couch and that's it. Hey, look, I can identify really well with all three of these failures we're talking about. We are taking a moment to personally identify with the failure of lazy self-indulgence. Has comfort become an idol to you? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been invited to engage the real spiritual battle that's happening around you. Are you engaging? We might be feeling pretty badly about ourselves right now. This is where we turn the corner. And remember that we're not going to focus on how we can do better. 
There is a place for that. There is a place for giving very careful attention to what Jesus says here. To go verse by verse, word by word, and look at what he says to his disciples. That's just not how we're going to approach it today. We're not looking so much at what Jesus says, at how Jesus handles it. Okay, So we're taking a higher level picture of what we see from Jesus here. How does he respond to our everyday failures? And we're going to do this really quickly. Notice, just first of all, as we get, try to get our minds around how he responds to everyday failures, notice what he doesn't do. Okay, He doesn't get really angry with them. We don't see that anywhere here. He doesn't get sarcastic with them. He doesn't treat them harshly. Many of us might have the idea that when we fail in the Christian life, that God is really angry with us. And this is the point where we have to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. That Jesus Christ himself has taken the wrath of God on our sin, on our sin and failures. And Jesus has taken all that wrath and the appropriate anger that God feels. Christ has taken that for us, on our behalf, for our past, present, and future sins. Okay, let's get that really, really clear. That God is not angry with you when you sin and you fail because there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't see Jesus blowing up at these guys. His response to the everyday failures of his disciples is something very different from harshness and anger. This is what we see from him. Three things. He teaches, he encourages, and he reminds. That's Take a moment and just let that sink in. That's how he deals with the everyday failures of his disciples. He teaches, he encourages, and he reminds. We see him teaching in the first instance, verses 25 through 30. He's sitting with them, and he simply takes a moment to teach them. They're having this argument about who's the greatest, And he takes the moment to calmly teach and says, what you guys are arguing about, that's the way the Gentiles handle things. That's what it's like in the the rest of the world. Not so among you. In my kingdom, the greatest one is the one who serves. That's a teaching point. He's telling them what's true. Verses 31 to 34, responding to Peter In Peter's bravado, this is where we see him encouraging. Jesus knows what's coming for Peter. And in the midst of, of talking with him about these things, he encourages him. His main communication point to Peter is, I'm for you. Yeah, I know you're gonna fail. I am for you. I have prayed for you. And we need to to drink that in and understand that, that when we fail to remember Jesus is for us. I I love how he says Peter's name twice. It just communicates friendship and intimacy. Simon, Simon, he's encouraging him the whole way through. And the, the greatest encouragement that he receives from Jesus here 
is the knowledge that his failure is going to be used redemptively. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Like there's a future for you. And what an encouragement for him to know that his failure is not going to lead to him being cut off. Because Peter will become a strengthener of his brothers. Jesus encourages you. He is an encourager. We see him teaching. We see him encouraging. And then finally, in this section in the garden, we simply see him reminding. Did you notice he says the exact same thing to them in verse 40 and in verse 46? Same thing. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. They're not doing it. His response, pray that you may not enter into temptation. How does Jesus approach our everyday failures? What do we see him do here? He teaches, he encourages, and he reminds. He's not cutting people off from salvation. He's not heaping guilt on them. He's not relegating people to the sidelines. This is who God is to you who love him and who seek to walk with him, but often find yourself failing. He teaches He encourages, and he reminds. Now, one more question. Why can he be this way? Why can he be this um, patient kind of leader? Instead of uh, cracking the whip on us, and these guys, and on us, why can he be this seemingly at ease, patient kind of leader? Why is he like this? The reason he can be like this is because the critical performance is over. The critical performance is over. You know, think about someone who's directing um, a play, who's directing a a dramatic performance for a school, and think about all the, the pressure that they probably feel to make sure that everyone, all of the actors and the orchestra and everybody involved and the sound crew, to make sure that everyone is doing their job perfectly. Because the end result, what the audience experiences when they come to watch the performance, is a reflection of the director, right? And so I think there must be all this. I've never directed a play, but I can imagine if I did, I would be hard after everybody to make sure they do everything perfectly and probably to be too harsh and too angry to make sure that everything is perfect. Not so with Jesus because the performance is over. The critical performance is over. He did it. He performs. God is satisfied with his life. Therefore, we don't work on all these aspects of our life to try and be better and be good enough for God. No, we're called simply to place our trust in Jesus' performance. He was perfect. That's what it means to put our faith in him. We've left off trying our best to please God, and we're recognizing Jesus has pleased God perfectly. And so when Jesus directs us now, as he comes to us and teaches and reminds and encourages, he's not in the role of a play director that's whipping us into shape to perform better. His command to us is never go and do better. His command is come and walk alongside me and let me teach you because it will be good for you and it will be life-giving for you and it will be life-giving for other people if you 
walk this way. He can be so patient like this with us because the pressure of performance is over. This is like the after party. This is like the crew party where we have a chance now to sit down with the lead actor after all the performance is done. We get to sit down with him and say, how did you do that? How did you, how did you just do that? What do you know that I don't know? Would you be willing to spend time with me, with us, to teach us what you know? And where he always says, I would love to do that. Let's start right away. And so we begin this relationship, and he teaches and encourages and reminds, okay? Now, let's stand together. I want to ask you these three questions um, as, we, as we go and as we finish. Think about this church and seeing this, this Jesus. What have you seen today in Jesus that you love? What can you go home admiring in him? How has this Jesus that we've looked at shown himself to be different from the other leaders who are out there? Is this a person, this Jesus Christ that we've looked at in the scriptures, is this a person who you can follow and love and trust with your whole life? And if you have never taken that initial moment to say to Jesus, you personally, to say to him personally, I trust you with my whole life now. I I give you all of my sins, believing that you forgive me, that your death has paid the price for my sins, and I receive from you the, the credit for your perfect life, to give Jesus all of your sin and receive the credit for his perfect life. You can, you can do that right now in your heart. Receive Jesus Christ for the very first time. Enter into this relationship. I want that for you. And whether you realize it or not, you need him. And he offers himself so graciously to you as this patient, good teacher. Let's pray. Father, yes, if, if there's anyone here who, who is hearing this wonderful news about Jesus for the first time, I pray that you would confirm it to their hearts. I'm so glad that you have been so gracious with me. And each one of us offers our own, our own amen and our own thanksgiving to how you have been so patient with us in our failures. We thank you that Jesus Christ is a leader that is so good to follow. We rejoice in his goodness today and thank you in his holy name. Amen.